Well, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, well, there's there's the short version and the long version. I'll try to give the meaningful bits. Well, um, I, I don't even, I don't have to make dinner for like ninety minutes, so. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I I guess I did a few things. So you know, a lot of people have knowledge of me or some of my ideas from the DevOps conversation, but. My background really is uh, started as a software developer, got into the the Agiles, um, hung out with Alistair Coburn and a bunch of these people and thought that was a good idea for a while. Then uh, worked on Puppet and kind of like this foundational idea about moving um, system administration to look more like software development going back to 2004. Then I was, which is when I met you um, at Puppet, talking to Red Monk back in the day when that was the thing you did. Then got into a bunch of open source projects. So I was a VP of engineering for a, a OpenStack startup that was sold to EMC. That was an interesting chapter. Then spent uh, five years running around at Pivotal doing the Cloud Foundry and Spring stuff. Then spent the last three years at uh, Red Hat doing you know similar similar type of focus um, on their platform product. And then recently. Um, started uh, a new thing with some of my friends uh, that are, it's, it's basically a continuation of all that same work, uh, really focused on the, the social technical system that you need to build to be successful and doing it without needing to be beholden to any particular vendor or methodology or ideology. And I, I have my own ideas about a lot of this stuff, which, you know, hopefully we'll get to talk about a bit today, but uh, that that's where we're at right now is just trying to trying to help people do things better. We want people to have nice things. And then of course your name is Andrew Clay Schaefer. Oh yeah, my name's Andrew Clay Schaefer. <laughs> yeah, it's early. I just it's easy I, to forget. I, I'm on I'm on my first hundred and um, sixty milligrams of caffeine that we should hit right in the middle of this. And then <laughs> uh-huh. so my name's Andrew Clay Schaefer. I did all the stuff I just said about, you know, the, the buzzwords and we'll get into some of that. And then uh, we we started this new thing and that has a, a fun name that I enjoyed like making up. Uh, we call it Ergonautic, which is uh, reference to Greek. And I'll let you read the, the blog post. And you can you can see why I named it that. And and what was part of your criteria that names were available? Was that because uh, I know that's a fun process. So there's the the name being available, and then there's there's names that are also uh, it's related to like the the way that legal things happen. So people can mm. like um, trademark or copyright certain things, and and so we we did a little bit of a search for what we thought we could get away with, and uh, that's what we ended up with. So here's here's like like you know listening to the uh, your your history there, and and then and then what 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 I know y'all are focusing on like what like how would you describe the role that like you have been doing over the past few years and then like that you're aspiring to do right like like would you call it a consultant or like an advisor and you know when you do it at a vendor you're obviously trying to be helpful but you're trying to also like, you know, curry favor with the vendor that you have. And sometimes people will call this like a CTO role, which always like, I never really like that phrase for it because I think whatever, or a field CTO. But like, what, like, what is that function? Like, what, what does that type of job, that role do with people? Uh, I think this is part of the, the kind of confusion of the, the state of the market as well. So, you know, going back and, you know how you got to where you are, the job you work in, because um, I, I helped um, get you there. So, mm-hmm. so there's aspect of what we did that is related to marketing. Um, like it, it's just a blend and blur of things. So there's, there's a consultative aspect. Um, there's, there's like a developer relations or, or kind of like, I, w- I would argue that, you know, some of the stuff that we did um, particularly when we worked together, what was kind of like operator, um, rel- you know, relationships or, or stuff. And then more and more, especially with the current configuration, I think a lot of what we do is is really focused on the, the C-level understanding and like setting up the the rules of the game so that the rest of the practitioners can can do the work. So there's, I mean, from, from a 
practical business perspective, what we're setting up right now is, is, is a pure consultancy. Um, and, and then what I did in the context of all those other roles with vendors, there was an affinity for, you know, the particular perspective of the, the market with the products and services in, involved. So, you know, and, and that informed a lot of the things that I think about right now, where there's all many, there's almost too many products uh, that people have bought and aren't, aren't very capable of using. And that's part of the, the problem that I want to help people solve. Yeah. I, I mean, there's, there's, I, I mean, well, I'm always interested in this stuff. So, so, so I'll ask about it, but it, it almost seems like, so, so there's this type of like working with people that's, that's sort of like the, uh, how to work with executives <laughs> and like, like the, 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 it's all down to like almost the medium that you do it with, right? Like the first, the first thing is always like, oh, you've got to be brief and never talk about the technologies, right? Like, you know, just kind of be, be like, uh, again, just be brief kind of in a memo form. And then there's another method that's sort of like, well, when, when you work with executives, you have to like, like, it's almost like be that counterintuitive person who tells them something is wrong that they didn't realize, right? And, and they're trying to like fix the way things are going. And then there's another one that, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what all the categories are, but like, it always seems like people portray like sitting down and working with an executive as like some strange mystic art. Uh, and, and like, but I, I don't know, like what, what are the different styles you find working with executives? Kind of like you were saying, like in the case of, you know, I, I was told that the DevOps would fix everything and now everything is not fixed. Like, <laughs> so, so this is, this is a very fascinating topic. Uh, I, I think that similar to, every other layer of this conversation that for every piece of advice that you get, you can find a counter um, example or, or counter advice to that, that is going to play equally well. I think that, you know, as a category that, that executives aren't of like a monolith and say developers are operators and, and that you have to be able to understand the, the conversation and the way you're navigating it. And, and for me, you know, there, there's lots of different ways to think about this, but here's a mental model I kind of have that might, might make sense to people or might not. But when, when I was in uh, university, I spent a good fraction of the time on a debate scholarship. Mm -hmm. And, and so you, you go to these tournaments and it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who makes the best argument. It matters who the judges vote for. And so you have to profile the judges that you're going to. And, and so like certain arguments are not going to work with certain judges. And you kind of build a, a, a model in your head about what you can get away with and then what will be what will be received well. So so like, for example, sometimes you have what you, we, we, we would call like the mom judges, where it's like someone that's not necessarily well versed in all these things, but they have like. A perspective and so you you kind of try to appeal to whatever that perspective is and then you're not going to use like really esoteric arguments or like you know in this case it would be like a technical detailed conversation but then when you get to like someone who's at a school that practices like some of those esoteric arguments then you know that you can run those and they'll they'll respond to that so similar to that i think about like who's this person What's their background? How are they engaging me? What's the vocabulary they're choosing? And then based on the vocabulary that they're choosing and the way they're responding to the, to the vocabulary I'm using, then, then like we, we started, it's like you negotiate the protocol that's going to work the best with that person. So I, I think right now you're actually seeing, and this is related to a bunch of these trends, you're seeing a shift in the market, in the leadership where in a lot of cases, you know, the CTO used to be an MBA, but where now you're seeing a CTO might actually have a technical background, mm. even in organizations that were, you know, for a long time telling themselves they weren't technology companies. Now they're making um, more and more kind of like shifts towards having that technical conversation at the highest level of the company. Right. So if, if you have a, a C-level that has a technical background, then the conversations you can have are different than if, if you don't.
Yeah, 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 yeah. I, and I guess there's a great experiment going on now when you have a technical person become a CEO to see how that pans out for uh, s- simple uh, sharing services. But, you know, yeah, I, I mean, mean, you're... The, you're the, the roller coaster ride, but if you look at the last decade of the, uh, the market, that seems to work out pretty well. <laughs> In, indeed. Yeah, and, and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're helping me like refine my question a little bit. Like one thing, and, and you're one of the people who, who do this a lot, and which is in order to kind of, and you do this with any person, right? But there's a certain subset of, um, what do they call that when you're like modeling someone else's like posture and behavior and speaking pattern to like talk with them better? Maybe it's called modeling. Mirroring. Yeah, there you go. And um, like, you know, you, you seem like one of these people who kind of like collects systems, <laughs> like like various systems and ways of thinking so that so that when and I, there's there's lots of people who do this so that when you go out, you can start to figure out like how which system is useful for talking with someone like, you know, whether it's like, you know, systems of complexity or systems of that or just kind of like I always think of them as like models rather than systems. I don't know. There's, there's probably not much different there, but you seem to have a pretty good catalog of like. You know, it's almost as if uh, you're going up to have a conversation with someone and you bring like this, uh, this old laundry basket that's full of things. And you're like, how about this one? No. OK. Uh, how about this one? <laughs> and like you try to find the, the, the system or the model that matches so that you can just have the conversation. Humans are deeply tribal. And the, the, the way that we kind of exchange information with each other, we're constantly tribal. We're, we're signaling our tribe. So there's lots of tribal signaling. And then I won't go into the, the long version of this story, but uh, I, I think I told you some of this over over long dinners or, or something before. But like in some ways, I feel like I was never properly enculturated <laughs> as a as a youth. And, and so then as a consequence of that, I, I just as a survival mechanism kind of got in the habit of of, of like navigating and probing what what tribe there there is and and maybe i don't always show up as like a member of your tribe but what what's important is not that you think i'm always your tribe that you don't think that i'm a tribe that's your enemy right so it's like <laughs> finding ways to sure to kind of like understand and, and like another way to talk about this is code switching yeah. uh, between the, the the different perspectives and personas that that you're interacting with yeah i mean as a side note this interesting it, it, it must be the case that uh, people who like in, in the extreme ends of, of, of this, but people who were like kind of growing up nervous about fitting in kind of like can develop all sorts of like, um, what would you call it? Conniving is the wrong the word. They, they oh. can be clever about like trying to figure out how to uh, fit into things just like as, as you would need to. Well, so speaking of tribes, I think, I think, uh, uh, I think we have gone through the full cycle of people declaring that the uh, something is dead, and that is DevOps, and I and I uh, I feel I feel like you know there's a bunch of it'd be interesting to hear your your uh, history of like this phrase platform engineering, but I think fi- I think maybe over almost a year now this phrase has has caught some currency, and then over the summer it kind of like moved into like uh, I don't know a, a new type of DevOps sort of thing or not, and then I think. I think maybe it was three or four weeks ago. I think maybe right after you left Amsterdam, you you were here for SREcon. Uh, there were a few things. I think I think you can tell when there's an apex of thought leadership when the new stack publishes some article that says X is dead, and then and then you've reached you've reached the height of it. And I think I think uh, to to his credit, I think what I saw was uh, somewhere Jesse Robbins had a post of like, hey that's kind of like shitting all over the people who worked on this, <laughs> but you know, so that, that's my, that's my funny little, uh, Cote cycle of something is dead, but you know, what, what's, what, what's your reflections on this idea of like platform engineering and how it fits in or where it comes from or what's going on with it? Well, there, there's, there's a few things to start with. Uh, if you, if you're so inclined and the internet doesn't necessarily forget these things, uh, DevOps has died every year for a while now. So that, that's not like even interesting. I think it's sort of a, a kind of like a silly clickbaity uh, click way to, to position things. Um, and then I also 
I mean, and, and some of this we we did together, and there's actually some podcasts that we made um, when when we were working for the same company. I don't think anyone talked about platforms or platforming more than I have for the last ten years. Uh, and and I'll, I'll take that bet with, with anyone who wants to take it. So there's there there's like what is the actual utility of a of a certain idea and then the buzzword and then this kind of goes back to the question about how how do you interact with the executives and the sponsorship so mm. when when you think about the this like cycle of buzzwords uh i i didn't necessarily like the word devops when people started using that um maybe, maybe because i'm you know sardonic or what have you and and, and old but but it's like that that's that's not i mean we, when we first started making some of these podcasts uh i i was calling this the uh agile uh infrastructure right so mm -hmm. it's like way, way back so it was like why do we need a new word why do we need why do we need like a new thing oh okay well what i've come to realize over the last 20 years of watching these cycles is that the value of the new word um, whether you're talking about the analysts or the executives or the practitioners is um, it, it gives you a, a new thing to get funded and it gives you a new thing to like um, try to clean up the thing that you did wrong the first time. Right. So so at this point we have and, and I'm not exaggerating, you have organizations where there is a DevOps team, an SRE team, a DevSecOps team. Uh, continuous delivery team, uh, you know, pick pick a buzzword, and they've got like these little pockets of of you know sponsorship and funding and headcount to do this work, and and none of it's really working very well, and and they're confused why. And adding a new buzzword and a new team is not going to fix that problem for you. And if you go back to what. I, I consider like the principles of DevOps, then you, you need to build a platform that is fit for your purpose. And that platform should emerge from the, the selfish interests involved across all these different capabilities in your organization that are, are negotiating with each other in favor of the collective. So the idea that all of a sudden you're gonna get a much better uh, outcome because you carved off some little special team to go work on tools that you're going to call your platform. Like what, what was that DevOps team that you made supposedly doing? Like what are the SRE teams that you made supposedly doing? You, you don't need a new thing. And I, I think, uh, so, so the person that started, uh, posting is, is, uh, my coworkers are posting in the stream, which is great. Um, Another model that is interesting that is related to this kind of conversation is I don't know if you saw the Cook talk on um, and, and you know uh, he recently passed so it was like there's all this conversation with mm -hmm. Allspa the adaptive capacity stuff and and uh, Dr. Cook gave this great talk on on uh, resilience and and particularly like using the the bone in in a living organism as a model of resilience. And, and in that model, what he talks about is, you know, you can go watch it. It's a great talk, you know, so there's like the redeploy version or the DevOps Day Chicago version or whatever. It's like 30 minute talk. And he, he models the, the bone, you know, and how bones break and how they're reformed and how they get, you know, build bone density along the, these like force lines. And the way that happens is you have these things called osteoblast, the buildup bone and osteoclast, the teardown bone. And if you look at what we see in most of these organizations, you have you have this thing that's constantly adding, but you very rarely see people really revisit and tear things down. There's no resorption, right? So you just get like layer on layer on layer on layer. And if you do that in a living uh, organism, that looks suspiciously like a tumor, right? So going back to the, the, the tension span of the executives, if you show up with something that sounds novel, relevant, incredible, they'll always listen to you. And if that is like of moving the ball forward and getting something funded and letting you do something that you couldn't do without that jargon, without that sponsorship, 
then then I'm in favor of that. Um, but if you think that just rubbing a new buzzword and like not changing anything and it's particularly like not reconciling the holistic flow of work through these organizations, then then it's not going to be better. Just adding a new t a new silo into the problem that was like too many silos in the first place isn't going to solve your problem. Yeah, I mean, it almost seems like o over the years, whether it's, you know, from from, uh, you know, ar around the, the, the agile infrastructure times, you know, and uh, thinking about that to uh, through through a little bit of uh, web operations and then DevOps and and uh, SRE and the stuff like organizations choose to like only do 40 percent of what was in the book, so to speak. <laughs> and, and then I they just kind of like coast through that. Yeah, forty percent is optimistic. Well, I was I mean, going to start with sixty percent, and then I thought like that's too optimistic. But the point being that like you know you could almost have like if if you were to make a visual and you kind of like listed f whatever, just doing this for rhetorical purposes, whether it's whatever. But like you listed the practices and the things of each of these things, you could almost randomly pick through each phase which ones companies had adopted as as a cluster, and there would be this weird like it'd be like those stock charts that have the error bars in them sort of like going across the uh, the timeline. You, you can open up organizations and you can almost tell what year they stopped learning or like what buzzwords <laughs> were. Um, but but going back to the point you made, this article, which I, I try to read, you know, not every single thing, but a lot of things. The article um, also declares the death of SRE, which is which is interesting and and reduces uh, DevOps in that in that article too, if you build it, you run it, which is a much misunderstood um, and often quoted line from 2006 from Werner Vogel's inside of Amazon, which is one three years before DevOps is a word, and two when Werner Vogel says you build it, you run it, they already have API provisioning of infrastructure. API configuration, API, like everything looks like software development. And those, those platform APIs, maybe not quite at a Heroku level, are, are already in place. So the, the two pizza team that you build it, you run it, is only running that very, very top layer, the, the cherry on top of the platform as a service, um, infrastructure as a service Sunday. They're not, they're not building infrastructure. You build it, you run it was never intended for developers to like build and run their own infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that point, I mean, you know, I, I see that over and over again. It's, it's the uh, it's the difference between like the uh, stereotypical idea of a full stack developer that they're going to go out and build all of the but, platform. But, but the, pattern, the pattern of this like clickbait strategy is like you just build up a straw man. And then you, you know, you, you charge at the straw man and then, you know, you defeat the straw man. It's like, okay, good job. So, so what, okay. So that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, it's the, 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 the is dead thing is a cherished, uh, cycle in our, uh, our industry. I always wonder, like, you know, I don't know why I always choose like cardboard manufacturing. I think it's because, you know, I don't know if you you, you uh, still get these, uh, somehow you get on a list of like financial analysts and then they send you like everything from that financial analyst house. And you're like, I had no idea there was a cardboard industry with the top 50 stocks that you might want to pay attention to. But I always think like, I, I wonder like if in the cardboard industry, are there as like strong debates ongoing in their trade magazines about practices? Like, you know, the uh, there's those 45 degree angle fold people but it's really the 30 degree angle people who've got it going on. They, they, their well, perforation is a little too wide. We, I, I won't, I won't name the person who coined this term. Um, but the, uh, narcissism of small differences is a very interesting little rabbit hole to go or read up on that, that you have, you, you have this sort of violent, um, exchange between groups that from afar look nearly identical. Right. And, and, you know, you could go through the the whole conversation about what DevOps is or, or was to now. But it's like you, you're trying to solve the same problems. You know, to me, to me, I think it's absurd to think about any of these things separated from themselves. Right. So it's like it, it can you can you do continuous de delivery without DevOps? 
microservices without DevOps, like good luck. You can't, can you do microservices without a platform? Like I literally been arguing that for going on almost 10 years, eight years at least. So that, this is a good, a good point. Just define what a platform is. That's always fun to see done. I mean, I think all these words, uh, you know, this kind of relate to some of the other themes you wanted to bring out later, but all, all these words have definitions that are not necessarily shared in the context of the conversation that you're having right now, right? So to, to me, if, if, you, if you believe there's such thing as a platform as a service, which we'll, we'll use the quote unquote as a service to mean it's somehow delivered through the internet with APIs, then that implies that there's, there's some platformness that occurs without a service. So at, at the very, very simple level, I would argue that the platform is whatever accomplishes the, the kind of act of the work that's produced, these artifacts are produced, flowing from wherever they're produced, however they're produced, to, to production. And that could be a sysadmin running, you know, do it five.sh, um, or, or that could be uh, everything in between, right? So, so like we went through a few phases of this where we, we, we said, okay, like we're gonna stop writing um, bash directly and we're gonna wrap our bash in Ruby and Python and now it's like we're gonna, we're not going to write Bash anymore. We're just going to put it in in like these Docker files or 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 in our Kubernetes YAML or whatever. So it's like still Bash, it's still a bunch of janky Bash. Like it's just what what are we doing to kind of like wrap it up and hide it from ourselves? You know, to that that to that point, like the thing I, I joke about this all the time, but like I'm always, I think I think way back when when uh, when when you know I got, I got to know you and 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 Luke at Puppet and then later the chef people the chef people I was always curious like yeah but where's the code that actually like moves the bits from one directory to another one like eventually there's going to be some code that executes and does something which I think is always easy to lose track of I mean especially like when over the years I've been uh, you know learning what Kubernetes does which which I still only barely do. It's I, I, I always come across these things that are like, look how easy it is in three lines to deploy a cloud. And I always think like, yeah, but eventually there's some code that actually does something. And that's what I'd rather see than just. Yeah, the, the, those three lines are, are sitting on a mountain of code that like someone else abstracted away from that, right? Yeah, I, you know, like I, I, I don't have the luxury or curse of doing this, but back when I was a programmer, one of my favorite things to do when I probably should have been doing actual work was just to like, load up the Java program in a debugger and just like walk down the code to eventually find like, ah, here's where the addition, not, not addition, not that level, but like, here's where something actually happens. <laughs> Cause it like, and it, especially in like, uh, and I, man, it always feels like this with all the, the, like infrastructure isn't object oriented. It's, I don't, I don't What word would you use to describe like the model that people think about infrastructure now? Like we used to call it like, declarative or something but like what word do people use for that type of design now so the, this is the, I, I mean this is a deep rabbit hole that can be go down but the kind of tension going back to the, the the puppet days and now kind of being replayed in the in the yaml um kubernetes um package operator wars is like what what is what does it mean to be imperative versus declarative yes and and the reality is and and puppet always aspired to be declarative right now i would say if you look at kind of like the high level interesting bits of this what these systems do is they set up a control loop mm -hmm. where there's sort of like a sensor um sen sensor um pass that tries to figure out what is the current state compares that to the desired state and then tries to reconcile that. So the declarative aspect is the desired state. Like we declare that we want these systems. And so if you think about what Puppet was trying to do, that was declarative in the context of a particular node. And then you get to Kubernetes where you get to be declarative in the context of, of more of a system, right? So like each node in the old, old style had to kind of be glued together. But the reality is, that when, when you get to that reconciliation, that because of the nature of reality, time and space and the way that these systems actually work, 
that, that has to be imperative, right? So the declarative aspect of it is uh, uh, sort of like an abstract, abstracted fantasy. And there's a value to having that, uh, but at the point where it doesn't work how you expected it to, then, then you have uh, to go dig into those layers of abstraction that you put in between yourself and that reality and figure out what, what's going on to, to troubleshoot. And so to, to, I, I'm not sure this is a very linear way to, to come back to this point, but one of the things that I, and this is, these are conversations that have been coming up for a while, but when, when you start to talk about infrastructure as code or any of these new things, now that you have this software that's doing these things, I don't understand why people didn't realize that that's like, that's now software and that you should engineer it like software and you should treat it like software. Right. That, that was like a major point of, of the, the, the conversation that I was having in the agile infrastructure days is, is like, you should treat this like software. You should have continuous integration on your infrastructure. You should have continuous integration on your platform as, as well as your software. Right. And each of those might be separate. And what you're trying to do is keep them coherent and decoupled without delaminating from each other, right? Because I, I think that's where you get a lot of the interesting um, pathologies and in organizations is that the, the, the platform is divergent from what the software and the software developers actually need it to be. And unless you have enabled them as agents to contribute to the barn raising of that platform, then in, in you know like there's lots of different organizations with lots of different power dynamics but in a lot of cases you see the the developers running away from the platforms that were built that weren't built by them uh, for them yeah you know on on that point i forget if we talked about this when when you were here but i've i i've i've been i've been thinking a lot about the idea of part of what's good about let's just say platform, whatever we want to call it, like, like built, having a platform mindset of how you do things is you, by the nature, as, as you were kind of saying, by the nature of how you configure and package and run things, like to some extent, it's literally programming when you're doing platform stuff, or it's like high level, pro, it's, it's like the low code version of, of, systems programming where you're programming a bunch of yaml files or whatever right like you're doing a declarative thing but it gets like so complicated that it might as well be programming the way that you're doing it like in the same way that like i have no idea what's happening at an operating system or a chip level and i'm just kind of like typing in a bunch of stuff to like make some pixels move on a screen like similarly you have that so there's that programming going on but what's interesting then is that as you're saying if you can get to the point where your developers I guess like send pull requests, like you know they they can start submitting like patches and contributing back to the infrastructure, which is a very different. I mean, it's it's like a very DevOpsy way to think, right? That you would uh, you know sh shift right, left, up and down, all the shifts. But like enabling that seems like it seems like a technological way to get collaboration going. We'll call it a, a socio-technical way, and. <laughs> uh -huh. Without naming names, uh, the the most successful kind of platformy um, outcomes, in my opinion, come where though that that is the expression of the agency, that is the negotiation of the selfish interest in favor of the collective interest. When the platform itself can be run similar to uh, like how you'd have an open source project in in the in the wild, right? So you have mm. the developers who have some understanding of these pipelines and, and the observability or whatever that is available to them. And they can, it's not that they have to, right? Because I think this is the argument that is, you, you don't want your developers to be burdened by this like operational consideration. But at the same time, if the platform's not fit for their purpose, what do you expect them to do? Right. And, and this is why you see this tension or, you know, people call it shadow IT, whatever, between these central, um, these the central kind of IT things versus the BUs who are like, yeah, we're not using that. We don't want we don't want to use your platform. We want to we want to do this other thing that that doesn't always work out well either. Uh, that that in a lot of cases, I, I think that there's been an over rotation onto like developer productivity developer experience and as a consequence 
you're creating like this un, unbounded operational burden. Um, also, we haven't really talked about security, but unbounded attack surface as you allow each of those autonomous teams to have their, their choices. They're, they're actually, they're, they're sacrificing the collective interest in favor of their selfish interest, where you can find that balance point in the middle where the platform makes the right thing, the easy thing, because every single developer at every single organization is constantly making a decision between doing things right and doing things right now. And they have all this other pressure on them um, to deliver and, you know, with time pressure, whatever. So, so like the more that the platform can keep promises to enable those developers to focus on the domain logic for the thing they want to solve um, without sacrificing the things that they, you know, don't necessarily want or don't necessarily do, but, but also don't sacrifice um, for the operational burden that you're creating. Don't sacrifice for the security um, or compliance or the rest of these other interests as well. So here to, to, to go by another little rabbit hole here just briefly, but I think it's important for a, a lot of what we were talking about here. So let, let's, let's go back to the bones thing. And this is, this is a rhetorical, a, a, a rhetoric question, which, which, you know, I love as, as you do yourself. So how here, here, let me put it this way. I struggle always with using metaphors too much to kind of convince someone how to think in a technical way, right? So let's take the bone one, right? So the bone one, uh, you know, like you need to have, if you keep building on this, I'm going to mess up the actual thing because I haven't seen the talk. But if you keep if you keep piling on this like scar tissue or fixes or things, if you don't use a part of a, of like a more natural system that might absorb it, then you're going to have elephantitis or something like that. Like something terrible is going to happen. And then like the thing I always struggle with is like trusting that that rhetorical analogy, someone's going to be I'm, I'm going to make a joke of it to make a point, but someone's going to be like, we need to install Kubernetes. <laughs> right. And like like and so. It's a matter of like how I mean, that, that's literally happening right now. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, and like so that I, I, you know, there's not so much a question here to use that famous phrase. But like I you're 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 one of the people who relies a lot more on like an analogistic jumps to other systems than than I do. And like, how do you calibrate on how that works or not? Like, you know, one of my favorite things is uh well, this one is a little bit better. Maybe this is part of the grading. It's like whatever, whatever the you know the rats on cocaine was. That was that was a, a great story in Minneapolis, and I I remember that because I came across a reference to that study recently. And I remember, if I'm remembering it correctly, the great thing about the study there's two ways you could interpret the study, and I think you'll, you'll probably remember better than I do. But the study was like, what will happen if we offer rats uh, cocaine or food? What will they do? And like they found out that in the first round, the rats will take the cocaine and like in, instead of the food. But then when I reread this recent or I came across this recently, what they said is, all right, so what if we give rats a really pleasant, enjoyable environment and everything is perfectly fine versus one that's miserable? And the miserable ones would always go for the cocaine, whereas the happier ones would eat occasionally. And so like so that's an analogy where you're like, oh. So we should make working here better. I mean, I'm so I think, I think the, the short, the short and simple answer for me is: Does it make sense to me, and does it amuse me? Um, you know, my my mental. <laughs> That's <model>. good. <laughs> so, so like, if I if I think there's something I can make sense of, then I'll try to help other people make sense of it. And so, the example you're talking about, the this is like fairly dated now, and there's a bunch of like back and forth about wh what any of this actually meant. But it's like this rat city experiment where where they said, oh, you know, if you if you make cocaine available to these rats, they'll like, they'll all become drug addicts. Um, but, but then that was, if you basically put rats in cages and like, don't give them anything else to do, then they'll like keep taking cocaine or what have you. Um, or, or, you know, you could pick whatever addictive um, drug probably. But then, but then the, the, the what they, sh what they demonstrated is if like you create a nice environment for those rats to like express all these other healthy behaviors, um, then they'll choose to go like do that instead of like be drug addicts, right? And so that that's like this this thing about like it, like just one one is like inferring what something means without seeing a larger context is always problematic, right? And like that yes. that's part of related to like all these socio technical systems problems that we're trying to solve because I think there's a tendency 
um, for, for people to define the model at their convenience for the bias and the agenda that they have, right? So, so like you want to prove a certain thing and you, you're going to see the data and interpret the narratives in such a way that the, the, the agenda that you already had in the first place is, is well served. So, okay. So then you, uh, you've used this phrase several times, the, uh, what was it? The socio-technical system. Yeah. So, so what is that? Let's, let's go over what that is. Well, if you, if you're reading, uh, a lot of the kind of like whatever propaganda people are trying to spin up around platform, uh, they started using social-technical, uh, quite a bit. And, and a lot of them are misusing it, um, which isn't surprising because, you know, words are hard or whatever. Uh, but if you go back in, in, in time and look at how that um, word comes into the lexicon, it actually started in, um, it, it was studying coal miners in London. So there's this Tavistock Institute and this guy, Trist, and they write all these papers. And one of the things I, I did in the last couple of months is I read a bunch of the, the social technical systems papers, which is like, interesting in, in, in my brain, but maybe not um, for everyone. So they, the, the, the story is, um, and again, you know, shocking plot twist, that they have invested in all of this automation, this machinery to do coal mining, and yet they're not getting a good return on that investment. In fact, productivity is flat or declined, uh, morale is down and safety is down, in these coal mines that have tried to adopt all of this centralized planning for the automation for the coal mines. And so the, the, what, what Trist shows is that if you give the local team with the understanding of that particular vein and the flow uh, of the coal that they need um, or, or can produce, that they have better morale, that they have higher productivity and they have better safety, right? And this goes back to like the 1950s and then, and then here's where the story kind of gets sad to me is that over and over, and you can kind of go up through like the rest of these narratives, like ACOF, Deming, like all this other stuff, right? So, so like in the DevOps conversation, we, we got all this Deming stuff um, at, at different times in the conversation. And it's like, that stuff's all old. Like, why did we, or, or the organizational learning stuff too, that's from the nineties. Why, why is it like buried um, under all these layers 20 years later that we're kind of like uncovering it. And so what, what happens in the coal mining uh, is that the Tavistock Institute and Trist write all these papers about how the, these kind of like self-organizing autonomous teams have higher productivity and, and, and better safety and better morale and all these other things. And then that goes back to the, to the managers and they're like, yeah, we're not doing that. No way. We're not going to do that. And, and then over time, they, they, they start to demonstrate like such better metrics that there starts to be some um, investment in trying to have those teams be, be, be managed that way. Because the managers, they're just afraid of like, they won't have anything to manage, I guess. And, and then what, what have, ends up happening, th this sad story, uh, is the, the, uh, the oil industry starts to overtake the so like the dynamic of the energy industry and like how we are um, consuming these different sources of hydrocarbons which you know has ramifications for us now uh, ba basically like all that stuff kind of gets like lost and buried because everyone's like oh that's for coal mining now now we're now that's like we're doing oil and like it just goes right back to like autocrats and command and control because it's it's on a new curve so it's like it's like a uh, like a like a double eye rolly, <laughs> like like not only in the coal industry where people are like no we're not doing that, but then you go to a whole new industry and it's like oh no we're special that's uh, for oil it's a completely different system we wouldn't oh, totally we wouldn't game. learn from that <laughs> yeah but but the but the the theme over and over is that these investments in automation that end up dehumanizing that that kind of social side of of the of the decision making. Are, are not leading to higher productivity, even though in, in theory they should. And that yeah. you don't get that higher productivity until, until you enable those agents that have an understanding and a context that those central planners don't have to be able to direct those, those resources appropriately. Right. Yeah, you know, so that's, that's a great example from my, uh, 
weird analogy using analogy questions, right? Because you you got two things going on there. One, it uh, it's it's just like here's here's how groups of people work when they're solving problems, right? And and like it's it's kind of studied, and also we've seen it over like one of the uh, you know when Willis tells his uh, dimming story. There's a there's a similar thing where he's like, oh, all the men went off for uh, World War II, and then and then women and other people ran the factories, and it went pretty well, and then the men came back, and they're like, we got it, see you later, and just sort of went back to uh, the way yeah, things he, are going. He, he, even uh, even J.W. Willis is like, or, uh, <laughs> like I, I brought a lot of the Deming stuff into the, the DevOps conversation, and and this this is like the same exact pattern where Deming demonstrates these these improvements in productivity in american factories and then when people come back from the war they're like no that's for women exactly and then so then the second part of why this kind of story i'm well, again thinking well, well, like one quick thing is like yeah. then deming goes to japan and they're like yeah that makes sense and then they they crush the 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 u.s and in fact there's a deming prize in japan to this day in in honor of of like the ideas and 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 that's really where all the lean stuff comes from ultimately as well. And maybe in the future you can turn into our our uh, special software defined talk book club episode with John Willis when when I read his. Uh, well, his we, he, he's uh, he's he's publishing a book. I I think it should come out um, early next year. Indeed. And so so then the second part of why I think you know the the coal mining thing is good for. Uh, all the way back to talking with IT executives, right? Is there's a good shift in there where it's like, and, you know, like there's not really anything particularly special about how you run IT. Just like there wasn't anything special between like coal mining and like oil mining. Sure, technology might be different and the way you go about doing things might be different, but the way that people like work on problems is the same. So therefore we can look at all of these studies that don't involve like computers and like learn some organizational behaviors from them, which when I listen to myself saying it out loud, loud sounds like stupidly obvious, <laughs> but like we've, all, we've all been around long enough to know that like, it's, it's almost like the more specialized your technical skills are, or just your skills, the more specialized your skills are, the more you tend to think that the way other people operate doesn't apply to you, that like there's something special about how you're operating and like you've got to like reinvent things or like it's not going to work well for you. Like it, it just doesn't apply. I think it goes back a little bit to the um, point I was making about tribalism, but then it also goes to the like we all make lo locally rational um, decisions, right, because we don't have the greater context. And so we're going to optimize for the things that we we experience and the things that we see. And in fact, this is where it gets really hard: is that the only way to really act is locally. You can't you can't take global actions except through the agents of the local the agency of the local actors. So th this is why these problems are, are difficult. They have all the all the kind of like unpredictability and complexity of any agent-based system but you you have you also have a little bit of a danger here because you know this kind of goes back to your critique of metaphor that i do think there are some qualitative differences when you start talking about the flow of knowledge work through a system mm -hmm. where the output is actually variation you're creating variation um, that is that is different than um, the manufacturing or the coal mining metaphor where what you're trying to produce or extract is is the minimization of the variation, right? Because you're right, making, right, right. make the exact same thing all the time. So the types of processes that you can bring or the type of optimizations that you can bring to that kind of process where you're minimizing the variation is slightly different, qualitatively different than what is optimal for knowledge work. I guess that that makes sense. I mean, that's the it's it's kind of like the old uh, you you had a good quip way back when about you know it's it's good to do waterfall development if you know exactly what you want to do and it well, waterfall change. is optimal <laughs> if there is no uncertainty in the system exactly and so yeah I mean that that I, I like that distinction of like you know there's there's probably multiple types of of uh, of work or whatever but one of them is that one of them as you say is that you want 
you want the same result with little variation in how it's achieved. I mean, you know, uh, especially when it comes to like coal mining and oil, you don't, you don't want to like be reinventing it every time. And once you figure out the right way to do it, it's safe to do it that way versus like, I guess, I guess, I don't know, creative seems like whatever, but the, whenever you're trying to like innovate something, you're almost trying to, uh, how can we maximize the benefits of chaos and evolution <laughs> and not, and not like, and somehow like protect ourselves from like, Oh, we screwed up big time there. And, and so therefore, I don't know. They're, they're another, another fun rabbit hole is innovation, right? So it's like you have these organizations and they say, we want, we want innovation. And it's like, okay, well, what do you, what do you actually want? What do you actually need? And what one is like, you don't really need innovation, first of all. But second of all, you say you want innovation, but then you also want it to be like this completely like spelled out mathematical return on investment for the money that you're going to put into it. Right. If you're not, th this is where I think a lot of these um, enterprises and leaders fall down because they, they want, they want certainty and they'll, they'll sacrifice everything for the illusion of certainty. Mm. And, you know, they, they're like, they want the business case for why this innovation is going to return the investment. And if you look at the way that these models work, you know, whether you're talking about Silicon Valley or um, Bell Labs or, you know, Xerox or whatever, like you, you have to allow that variation to explore the parameter space to really get innovation to happen. But furthermore, as, especially when you start talking about like these digital experiences and what people um, need, for the most part, what people actually need is not innovation. What they need is the most obvious solution applied to their most obvious problem, which in almost all cases is that you have a bunch of data and that data needs to be analyzed in such a way and presented in such a way to the right people at the right time so that they can make a better decision or, or make a better action, right? So most of what people are calling like innovation in startup land, it's not technical innovation. It's like there's a database and there's a user interface and, and it, right. like connects, it connects the cars or it connects the movies or it connects the food. It's like it's not technical innovation at all. It's like relatively well-defined, uh, well-studied, well-solved problems applied to a new domain. So the innovation might be that you applied it to this like slight variation domain, not anything to do with technology. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that is a... That, that would be fun to have a system that like kind of helps you figure out innovation versus doing the obvious <laughs> or, or more, 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 uh, uh, more nuanced figuring out why you can't do the obvious, right? Like, you know, in the old thing of like, we used a really simple example of like, well, of course we should have a way that you can order food online. Like it's, it's not like an innovative idea to do that, but for some reason, we don't do that. Or like, you know, of course, my favorite example is historically, like I, I used to, uh, until very recently, I had to pay my, my life insurance by filling out a PDF every year and doing something absurd. And it's like, you know, it's innovative in a way that now I don't. But really, like what was probably innovative in that like local environment was like innovating how we can just do that work. Like why, why haven't we done it? And now, now we've got to come up with like, setting up the system such that we can do it, which I don't know if that's budget or whatever, but like there's uh, I guess we used to call that like increment in, incremental improvement versus uh, big bang so, innovation so, or something. I mean, I, again, not, not to like blame the guilty or get too deep into um, any specific example, but it kind of goes back to the, the bone example, right? So you use the, you use this word work and that's like basis of the name of the company that I I'm starting. So work is, is many things it is the the process and is also the output and in a lot of cases what happens in organizations um it, it starts early but especially these these like long-standing enterprises that the work itself and the people that do the work are attached to the work and the way that it's done such that their their identity is the work so when you say we're going to change how we do this there's a whole bunch of people that take the paper form that you're filling out for your insurance and that's their job. And they're going to, they're going to preserve their, their chance to, to do that work. They, 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 they will fight you. So those, those silos become sort of self-perpetuating because now that you made it someone's job, 
they don't want to do it. And so the reason um, I say this ties back to the bone thing is that kind of you need to like resorb the people that are taking the paper in order to get to the point where you don't need to take the paper. Right. That sounds like some Kung Fu training. Get to the point where you don't need to take the paper. We, we should talk a little bit about SRE. The well, SRE. That, so you, you, that's where we, uh, how long, this was like three weeks ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you, uh, you came and gave a keynote at SREcon. I still, I can't find the recording, but you told me a little bit about I it. But... Post it. I, yeah. I posted my... Okay. Well, I know, I know it will be. Oh, of course. But uh, not, not at the moment is what I mean. But so what, what were you uh, giving a talk about there? What, what were you speaking on? Uh, well, like most of my talks, it was a, a rambling, meandering, like list of half, half made points. But uh, well, if someone's but, listened to this far to the podcast, they clearly yeah, exactly. enjoy that format. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so the title of the talk was SRE as she has spoke, which is a reference to a book that was written uh, called English as she has spoke, which is if you look, look it up on Wikipedia, a book that was um, in theory about translating from Portuguese into English, but the, um, the, 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 the thing is very comical because the person who wrote it clearly didn't understand English and then you could go like read the whole story. But supposedly this was amusing like Abraham Lincoln and Mark Twain and all these people of the time in the, in the kind of like 1800s. I, I love imagining like, like uh, you know, sharing memes in the 1800s, like what that must have been over and, and, the course so, of months. So the reason this is interesting and kind of like connected to a lot of the themes um, about the, the language that we use for whether you're talking about SRE, DevOps, platform engineering, whatever, is that uh, a lot of times that you, you have books that are written by people who don't understand the topic that they're writing the book about. Mm. So that's, that's one of the, the main themes. And, and then like, there's all these other um, models I have in my head about fluency that I, and like language acquisition as a model for skills acquisition in general. And, and there's some research and some interesting things about um, how people learn languages and what you can do. But the, the research and you know, these language learning communities have demonstrated that you can, you can become fluent in a language in, in six months if you create certain preconditions to acquire that skill. Uh, and, and I think most organizations don't, don't create the preconditions for their people to learn the skills that they need. And they, they're constantly caught in this, um, you know, we'll, we'll use the, 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 the mouse on the, on the uh, wheel thing. They're, they're like, they're trying to find the right people and they're like constantly lamenting that they don't have the right talent when they don't do the the right thing to develop the talent that they already have in their in their building. Yeah, you know, I mean that that connects to one of your, you know, from several years ago, famous things of there there is no talent shortage. Kind of a a way of the you know the way I always thought about it. I'll I'll summarize your talk for you, Andrew. The <laughs> the way I always think about it is exactly what you're just saying is like, well, have have you have you tried to like build a system where people you have or hire can do their job or they, you know, you can train them and you can like, like they can learn. Right. And I think, I mean, back, back to the, 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 the thing of like how far you can go with an analogy, right? Like it's another good application as you were just going over to say, well, the science or whatever, the, the, the pedagogy of learning languages is very well studied and understood, which is just like skills acquisition sort of. So, you know, you can follow that that thinking or all these other ways of like doing skill stuff versus like there's there's nothing special about IT stuff such that like people can't just learn how to do it if if you give them that setup like you don't and, it's, and it's you learn the best by doing it right and so that's what like I think I think a lot of organizations get trapped in this mode where oh we got to train people you you need to set up the systems of work such a, in such a way that you get better at doing the work by doing the work. And th that, that's also key to language acquisition. You acquire yeah. language by using the language. Well, speaking of using the language, I've got to go use some language with the pans to make dinner. I don't, I don't know what that language is because I'm often very quiet. We, we, we have lots of cooking metaphors we could, we could break out now too.
That's that's the one over the years I always uh, fall into is just uh, food. That's that's where my mind always is, unfortunately. Well, well, great. It's been, it's been fun uh, catching up and talking. What uh, where, where do you want to send people to what, if if they're interested in more? Uh, always a pleasure, and thanks for having me. Uh, little idea on Twitter is a good one. Uh, assuming Twitter keeps <laughs> staying um, Twitter. Uh, Andrew Clay Schaefer on LinkedIn is also good, and then uh, our new our new story is ergonautic.ly, which we can probably put in the show notes. And I don't know if you still do, but as you used to say, engage with my brand. Engage with my brand. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm a, social, I'm a social media expert. Well, I'll put links to that in the show notes. So if you go to uh, softwaredefinedtalk.com, I, I don't think this will be an episode number, but just go to softwaredefinedtalk.com and you can find uh, this episode and uh, find the links there. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. Stay, stay high, stay safe. Cheers. Three weeks out, we're getting down to the, the last of the Gouda, the Abraham, and we destroyed the Stroopwafels, like in short, short oh, order. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I think I brought home another uh, five, no, 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 not quite five. Probably like four pound, four kilos Yeah. of Gouda. Mm. Well, next time that I miss some, uh, some Southwestern or Tex-Mex food, I'll just think like, yeah, but I can have all the Dutch cheese that I want. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm going to argue tacos are better than Dutch cheese, though. Absolutely. I, you, know, you know why? Because you can put cheese in a taco, but you can't put a taco in cheese. But, so but you tell yourself what well, you got to get through the, <laughs> get through the experience.